Legally Sound Smart Business presents Behind the Buy. We're set to close next week. It does get easier from here. He would like berate staff in front of patients and he was rude to patients as well. I probably wouldn't do that. Just having second thoughts now and the good, the bad, the ugly is violating their trademark or something. So I'm a little worried about this. I actually think there's some opportunity here. Yeah, I know it's a mess. This is Legally Sound Smart Business, where your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp, cover business in the news and add their awesome legal twist. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast brought to you by Pasha Law PC, a law firm representing your business in California, Illinois, New York, and Texas. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Staub. All right, welcome to Legally Sound Smart Business. This is our sixth episode of Behind the Buy in our series where we uncover the business transaction of buying a business and you get to hear the inside scoop of their calls with our client. My name is Nasser Pasha. And I'm Matt Stom. So this episode, there, I, there's just so much to set up here. It, it's, it's, it's pretty dense, but I, I think we're, we're going to try to do it here. So in this episode, there's two phone calls. At this point, if you guys recall, in episode five, the uh, the buyer and seller have gone through some periods of due diligence. There was some hiccups there with the lease, and and you know the the the, the seller made a dumb mistake by telling the employees prematurely, and uh, but we did get past that, and we actually ended up signing an asset purchase agreement after it was drafted, and luckily. As soon as you sign the asset purchase agreement, it's not like the transaction's over. You still have another period of due diligence, and that's a little bit more intense than the LOI due diligence period. So that's about right where we are right now. Yeah, and if you recall from the the previous episode, we had all the well, I think it was three different contingencies in place. So, like you said, just because the agreement signed doesn't mean the transaction's done and the seller's getting paid at you know whatever the closing date is and. What's what's funny about this episode is if we look back and we had that issue with the all the employees finding out that seems like it's really a drop in the bucket compared to this. This is like a grab <laughs> yeah. bag of of issues that came up. There's it was just it was you know listen to the calls just one after the other without even any transition to the next one just because there was so many things on our mind that I think just needed to get them all out there and discuss with us. Right, and I would say that. If I if if I recall, like after that happened in the last episode and that last the the call before, you could tell that the seller is just going to be fun to work with, <laughs> to say the least. And so, so okay, so there's two calls. The first call is really short. It's just basically talking about the escrow period. But the second call, it's it's actually just it's a, I just want to set it up a little bit because. It's actually set very close. I think you know either a week or so before closing, and yeah. uh, the one, one week, the, yeah, one week. Okay, so our our client actually sent us an email. It was late in the night or something like that, and I remember. Okay, we, we, we it was 
relatively urgent. And so Matt and I talked first and then we got on the call with with our client to discuss. So I just wanted to set that up a little bit. And, and of course, like every episode, we have some defined words that we need to go over to make sure that doesn't uh, go over anyone's heads. I guess that's a little insulting to say. That's, I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> or I should say just to make just a reminder of certain words that maybe some people may need a reminder of. Well, yeah. So, and it's not even just listener. I think attorneys too with this first one identification clause. I'm not even sure there's there's a full understanding of that, but it's a very common provision that's in. I, I want to say every contract, but most contracts. But essentially, what it is is you have a two parties and the indemnifying party and the indemnified party. And it's basically if there's a third party claim made against the indemnified party, the other party then would, I probably should not describe it like this because I'm just saying indemnify over and over, but basically a third party <laughs> well, it claim. It sounds like a big party, but it sounds great though. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, long and the short, there's, there's a third party claim against one party and then the other party to the transaction in this case would then have to indemnify that that other party, meaning they'd have to, you know, basically become responsible or liable for for the claim as a result of their actions. Is that is that good? I don't know. I don't know if that made sense or not. Well, I I can define your definition maybe. Uh, to okay. kind of, <laughs> so I so that's absolutely hundred percent correct. But of course, um, to maybe break it down even further, uh, I, I would just look at it this way, is that if a party is harmed because of some other third party, and we're, so we have two parties here, the buyer and seller, okay? An indemnification clause in this sense is, is triggered where if the, if the seller sells their business to the buyer and later on some third party, whether it's a patient for the urgent care or an employee, sues the buyer who's now owning the business for something that the seller did, then the buyer is going to ask the seller to indemnify them or uh, to reimburse them for their loss, right? And it's very common for in pretty much every purchase agreement, asset purchase or uh, regular purchase agreement, that the buyer is going to indemnify the seller for any any, anything connected to conduct after the closing, and the seller is going to identify the buyer for anything that's that occurs prior to closing, and so it's usual right. mutual indemnification, but it, but it does go both ways. Yeah, and you know if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. It's the the seller should be responsible for anything that happens prior to close because they still own the business and. On the flip side, it's the buyer should be responsible for anything after closing because then they own the the business and the seller shouldn't be responsible. So yeah, it's hopefully that you know two minute definition made sense. Absolutely, and so uh, there's a couple industry specific terms that uh, we can just talk about really quickly. It's not a huge huge part of the episode, but we mentioned the MSO structure again, and if you recall from a few episodes back, that's the organizational structure that allows a, a non-healthcare provider entity or a non-professional entity to be involved in the business or operations of a professional entity, basically a management company that provides management services to the actual professional entity providing the healthcare services so that the non-healthcare entity does not have any undue influence on the actual practice of medicine. And that is 
protection of the corporate practice of medicine. And then we also mentioned that uh, a particular individual, I think we mentioned last time, the physician's assistant. Sometimes we use the word PA. And so just if you hear the word PA, that it just means physician's assistant, which is a type of a healthcare professional. Not quite a physician, but they do quite a bit of what a, f- a physician would do. Yep. Okay. Well, so there's so many things that went on in these two calls, but I think maybe we'll just go in chronological order and how it went just, just to kind of, <laughs> so we don't miss anything. Right. So on the first call, like I said, it was pretty short, but basically we were just discussing that the purchase agreement had been had been finalized and that escrow had been been opened and you know there there wasn't too much action with that. You know, basically what that I think we've talked about it before, but you know, we, we had the escrow in place so that our client could deposit funds into escrow to be held, you know, for for the seller's sake. And you know, at that point, everything seemed fine, and there were no issues. And then we got into the second call. All right. So let's let's take a listen. This is the first call, and then we'll chime in for the second. Hey, how are you? Hey, Nasser, I'm doing well. So uh, you feel relieved? <sighs> yeah, I'm just glad we got everything signed. <laughs> Agreed. So I mean, that big milestone. So I think. Uh, it does get easier from here, <laughs> trust me. So this call is more of just a general update and debrief from where we left off, just for the record, so to speak. Uh, we are recording, of course. Yeah, no problem. So we finalized the APA. It was signed yesterday. Uh, Matt lined up an escrow company that we've worked with in the past. Really important to get an escrow company that has a good experience with business transactions because a lot of them only do real estate. And so this particular escrow company. They've worked with us before. They've done these types of transactions. So I hope everything runs pretty smoothly with them. Okay. That's great. Um, I've got the wire info, so I'll probably wire the deposit later today. Um, and we have the rest of the money lined up already. So should we go ahead and transfer everything? I probably wouldn't do that. First, it's it's not really necessary. And I don't think there's any advantage kind of showing the buyer that you have the money in there and deposited. And since we're in this escrow period, there are a couple things that may come up. I'm not sure, but you know, just in case they do, it's nice to not you know have that in our pocket to to push later. Yeah, that's fine. I was just mentioning it as an option. Yeah, yeah no worries. Okay, so we'll be in touch. Uh, let us know when the deposit is made to, and we'll go from there. Okay, I'll let you know as soon as I make the deposit, and have a great rest of your day. Yep, thank you. See you later. All right, well, that was the first call, and uh, here's what happened next. Good afternoon. Afternoon. I have Matt here as well, of course. Hey, Matt. Hey. So uh, we got your email, and I thought it would just be better to get on call. Yeah, I know. It's a mess. Well, uh, let's discuss it. Trust me, this is part of the process. I know, but Dr. is having second thoughts now, and so I have to manage him and figure this whole thing out. I get it. If I understand it correctly, I actually think there's some opportunity here, so... Well, let's get into that. And I'm sorry to ask you to do this, but do you mind describing the situation again for our recording from where you started speaking to the physician assistant? Or actually, Matt, do you want to just give some background and maybe uh, pick off where we left off? Uh, So we opened escrow about three weeks ago and we're set to close next week, which besides this issue, I think we probably need to push that back closing date back anyway in order to make sure provider agreements are lined up with the payers. Okay, okay. And as discussed in our original call about the purchase agreement, uh, we wanted to make sure that one of the employees of the urgent care was lined up with an employment agreement prior to closing. Correct. And for whatever reason, despite having a fully executed purchase agreement and you depositing a sizable down payment into escrow, 
the seller kept putting off introducing you to that employee, but you finally met with her. Um, it was on Monday, so two days ago. Okay, got it. So, so please tell us how how that went. How did it go? Okay, so I met with her in person. Um, not all the staff knows yet that the sale is pretty much finalized. So I met with at a coffee shop um, a couple blocks near the urgent care. Uh, she's the PA. Correct. So as I said before, um, I had a good feeling that she was pretty much the one running the center, and it's pretty impossible to do what you are already living out of, you know, the state as a seller is. She was pretty much an open book and gave me the whole rundown, like the good, the bad, the ugly, and uh, how Dr. how he's never there and how he treats his staff and how he handles patient complaints and everything like that. Okay. What did she say about how he treats the staff? Well, she said a bunch of stuff. Um, he didn't, not that I'm aware of, do anything too crazy, but apparently he would like berate staff in front of patients and he was rude to patients as well. I guess he would make people document what they did during the day, especially during slow hours or days. It was, you know, just kind of a mess. And the, from what the PA said to me, it seemed like the urgent care is actually doing better now that he's left. Um, but things seem to kind of always slide backwards anytime he visits, which is about once a month at this point. But anyway, so the main thing, though, is she said that they received a letter from an attorney about a month ago. Um, she didn't know the exact date, but it would have been around the time that, you know, the seller and I were discussing buying terms. And she showed it to me, and she's supposed to send me a copy via email later today, and I'll send it to you as soon as I get it. But essentially, some other urgent care on the East Coast is named um, and they're saying that is violating their trademark or something. So I'm a little worried about this. Okay. So basically you both have the name, but the one you're buying has the word urgent in it. Is that the only difference? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I'll have to look at the letter again, but I'm pretty sure that's it. Okay. Yeah. J just send us a copy of that. So I definitely do not want to walk into a lawsuit, um, but part of the value of the business is that the seller did a bunch of marketing in the community and including like a big billboard and, and that's been kept up for a while. So the name is kind of known and I really, I really would like to keep it, but this is just a huge mess. And um, there are other issues now that I have to ask you about, but this is, this is the main thing. Okay. And, and I assume you haven't brought this up to the seller yet. Um, no, but I'm pretty sure he knows. I know the PA, um, I, I know because the PA told him, uh, to show it to me. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure he knows why he waited a week until, uh, before closing to tell me. I'm not sure. Um, he knows I wanted to keep the name, so I don't understand. Okay. Like I said, I, I do think there might be some opportunity here or at least some uh, easy way to solve this issue. And I, I don't think it's a deal killer yet. But so before we dive into that, you mentioned some other issues. What are the other issues you wanted to discuss? Um, not necessarily issues, mostly questions. Um, there was one issue that I think we need to talk about, which is the PA. So she said she's not an employee, but she's actually a contractor. But she's willing to do an employee arrangement, but she would want to make sure that her net pay is still the same, which means I would have to pay her a little more. So she works full time, right? Yes. Uh, actually, I think she works six days a week along with another PA and they split the shifts. Okay. Well, uh, you know, it's a common problem, but she probably should have been classified as an employee. I'm pretty sure all of the staff are contractors because they do really short shifts. Um, so she said that before she started handling most of the operations, they had a lot of turnover with staff. So he just started, you know, contracting people out for part-time positions and things like that. 
Uh, I think he was just trying to diversify the staff uh, so he didn't become too reliant on anyone. And he actually does pay pretty well. Okay, so approximately how many staff members does he have? I, I mean, from a full-time equivalent perspective, since he has a lot of part-time workers. I think he has probably seven people in total, um, but only about two or three are working full-time. You have to run urgent cares really lean in order to make a good profit. So Dr. and I have already talked about, you know, we'll probably be cutting the staff pretty quickly after we evaluate everyone's performance um, in about a month or two. Okay, uh, so obviously, Matt, we'll, we have to look into the classification issue, but frankly, those individuals probably need to be hired as employees, which uh, may be problematic, but I think it's more for the seller because he's the one that, first of all, made the mistake. He's the one that would be liable to the IRS and also have state ramifications with the state of California. And also, this is one of the reasons why there's a benefit of doing an asset purchase because the IRS follows the tax ID, not the assets. So, so that should be good. But in any case, we still have an identification clause. So any of these liabilities that occur prior to closing is going to be his. And so he has to cover you for those. True. Uh, but I, I can see some staff members not wanting to be paid as an employee either. But I don't think it's a huge issue as everyone's going to expect some changes once a new employer comes in. Yeah, and, and like I said, the PA wants to get a pay increase if she goes at it as an employee, but the good news is is she's willing to stay. And she actually seems pretty happy that someone else is buying the business. Okay, well, you know, there's some risk here, obviously, but it's not a huge issue. It would have been a bigger issue if you hired them as a 1099 incorrectly when they should have been W-2. So we're, we're catching this issue really early. But let's go back to the trademark issue. Okay, Matt and I spoke a little bit before this call after reading your email, and I think we have a pretty decent plan. So our first thought is, if you decrease the sales price, knowing that you're gonna to have to deal with this trademark issue, that may be an option. You know, We thought the best way to handle that, it was a combination of both renegotiating the purchase price, but also, more importantly, holding back a certain amount of money at closing. So, okay, this is the concept. You, you wanna keep the name, right? but you don't want to buy a business and then find out later you can't use the name because it's infringing on someone else's trademark. But I assume if you had another name you like, you would still buy it, right? Buy this business. It's, you're not buying the business just for its name, right? I mean, yeah, but the, it's the cost of rebranding that's the problem, even if I do find a better name. Exactly. So, and that's kind of my point. So what, what's, the, what's the cost of rebranding? Um, honestly, I, I really don't know. Okay. Uh, well, ballpark for now, let's just think about this here for a second. So yeah, there's signage, marketing, interior, all that stuff. How much do you think that would be ballpark? Uh, I don't know exactly. I would guess, um, I don't know, at least 20,000, probably more. Um, I mean, we would need to do a remarketing campaign, mailers or something to re-engage the community. Okay. So let, let's just say 30,000 for the sake of discussion. First, what you do is you negotiate the purchase price based upon the fact that you may no longer be able to use the name. And so at closing, you hold back $30,000 in escrow. And then that amount will not be released until you're given time to figure out whether you can actually keep the name or not. And of course, if you are able to keep the name, then you release the 30K. If not, then it, it goes back to you. So in the meantime, Matt and I deal with his company on the East Coast. After closing, you see 
a lot of these companies that own these trademarks, uh, sometimes they can be overly aggressive, frankly, needlessly in enforcing their trademark. So this may be one of those cases, but without really diving into the issue and possibly you know contacting these other guys on the East Coast now, we won't be able to really know what exactly the issue is, whether it actually does infringe or not. Yeah, I actually already looked up the mark while we were on the phone. So so a little bit of good and bad news here. They they do have a registered mark, but they and they register last year. And obviously the seller's urgent care has been around for three years. So there's a good chance that if you want to keep the name, we can. But the fact that the mark is registered, you know, obviously doesn't help us. Right. So I just want to go back for a second. So we hold back this 30 grand in post-closing. And at that point, you'll be able to decide, let's say within six months, Matt and I say, okay, you can use this trademark for free without any kind of risk of liability. Or maybe we tell you there's some risk. And so you may or may not want to use it. And if you decide to use the trademark, then you release the 30 grand to the seller. If you choose not to use it because it's too risky and you want to create your own brand, then the 30 grand gets released to you. You know, honestly, I think it's a great idea. Um, that way too, I mean, I was a little concerned when said that, um, you know, he was being rude to patients. So maybe a rebranding would actually help us. Right. We talked about giving it like a six month period where you decide whether you want to continue using the name or not. And if not, you know, the holdback funds will go back to you. Otherwise it'll be released to the seller. And that decision to use the trademark and release the funds is completely up to you. Okay. And that can work. Um, I'll, I'll see how long he would agree to, but I, but I really think that should work. Okay. One other thing I, I wanted to know is that this East Coast company may agree to what's called a coexistence agreement. So that's where each of you agree to use the mark with certain limitations. For example, like you, you agreed only use it in California or only for urgent cares. Because if I looked up uh, his website and they're only located in New Jersey, they also are more expansive, um, include everything from urgent cares, hospitals, and surgery centers. Yeah, it sounds like they're a mini health system of sorts. Right. So that coexistence agreement, that might be a good out for you too. So at the end, though, if the seller agrees, this is a good way to minimize the impact. I think this, is, this solves your problem you know, from the get-go. I agree. Um, and it makes me a lot more comfortable for sure. Um, I've actually scheduled a call for, um, with the seller later today to talk about the trademark issue. But I'm pretty sure I can convince him you know, of this deal. But do you guys think you could get in on the call with me so that you can help me explain it? Yeah, definitely. And I can. And we can draft an amendment of the purchase agreement outlining this, and, and he can review it then. You think we can get that out today? Yeah, I, I think given the circumstances, we can. Okay, yeah. So let's, let's get that done for sure. Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll reach out to you after this call. Uh, we have a couple other smaller items uh, I need you to review. And we also need to finalize how much we're going to hold back before we speak to the seller. For sure. Um, I'll also get Dr. on the call so that hopefully it can make him feel a little more comfortable about this whole situation too. Okay, great. No problem. Uh, I'll, I'll call you now. Bye. Thanks again, guys. Yep. See you. All right. Welcome back. That was a phone call. <laughs> to say the least. Um, a lot of things to talk about there. But before we do, let's talk about our sponsors, a, a law firm that has been supporting us since the beginning of the series. I can't say enough how much I'm thankful for their support. Matt, why don't you give them a proper introduction? Yeah, so this episode's sponsor is Posh Law PC, a 
corporate law firm that operates in California, Texas, New York, and Illinois. And for for here, I I actually used them recently. I had a really? uh, a contract that needed to be re- yeah that needed to be reviewed, and so I reached out to them, and they were able to do it on a pretty quick turnaround and. I uh, think they negotiated pretty well, and as pretty overall, I'd say what eight out of eight stars for for their their work on this. Wow, eight of out of eight—that's pretty high. I mean, I would have given you know ten out of eight, but I think you're probably more realistic than I am. Yeah, I didn't know if you meant it was the, the overall system was too high or the score was too high, but it sounds like both. <laughs> right. So okay, so let's get to this call. Obviously, uh, I don't want to diminish our, our sponsors, but we do, you know, besides paying the bills, we also need to get to the actual substance of this episode. And there's a lot of substance. So, and this this buyer, or I'm sorry, this seller is just uh, a piece of work, right? Yeah. I mean, like I, we said previously, it's there's just so many issues going on and it's they can't really get out of their own way. So, it's, uh, I don't know, what was the first thing that came up? It was... The, I think that seller was having second thoughts. Is that what was happening? Yeah, was it the seller or actually no? The uh, the buyer's partner. He was he was even having second thoughts because of just how ridiculous this transaction was was getting. So I I just want to put this call in context, right? This is a second call. This is a week before closing, and a week before closing, the buyer finds out that number one. They may not be able to use the trademark name that they thought they would or the brand name that they thought they would. Second is apparently the seller is a horrible boss. Okay, I mean, that may have been predictable, but that doesn't help. And then the personnel that they're using is probably not classified correctly. And the buyer basically needs to transfer everyone to employees, which means that they're going to get a pay cut if because of payroll taxes, et cetera, if they keep everything the same. So most likely they're going to have to raise it up a little bit. I mean, this is all literally a week before closing, and unfortunately, our client had to deal with it. Fortunately, she had us as as attorneys to kind of help her through this because even though that may sound a lot, uh, I think they were all very manageable issues. Yeah, and the thing I'll say about that is they were all all of them were were known things prior to. The buyer finding out about them, and I guess the seller could say, "Well, we just received this demand letter," but the they still knew. <laughs> well, I guess I shouldn't say no, but the, the name issue was something that existed prior to the demand letter being sent. So these are all problems that were pre-existing that the our clients finding out one week, finding out about one week before the transaction set to close. Right. And and frankly, this is what happens. I would say it, it doesn't usually happen so close to closing. And I think that's more of a testament to the disorganization of the seller, not the buyer. But it is very common for the real due diligence to all the real facts to come out after escrow opens so that you know now the, the parties are a little bit more serious in the past, the letter of intent. You know, people are just dancing with each other a little bit, but now it's like, okay, let, this is serious. We're actually going to close this thing. Let's get to looking at, you know, really close under the hood. On one hand, it's a good thing, right? We uncovered this because imagine that our client had purchased the urgent care after, or I should say, before receiving this cease and desist from this uh, health system on the East Coast that had a similar trademark name or a similar name, right? 
then then it would have been a lot more difficult to negotiate with the seller. And so in that way, that's why I think we even begin the call. I think there's some opportunity here. Yeah. And just real quick, the, so you mentioned the three issues. I think it goes from easiest to deal with, to, or I guess, yeah, easiest to deal with to hardest to deal with. So the, the part about right. the employees, <laughs> that's like good. that's she can get over that. I don't think that's too much of a concern. Then we get into, like you said, the the trademark issue, and you know, uh, it's it's I, what I thought, what kind of thought of when I listened to call again was, you know, what what to do if a, a a demand letter or a cease and desist letter is received when you're in escrow. I mean, how how is that handled? I think the what in this case the the actual seller wasn't the one to disclose it to to the buyer. It was the physician, physician's assistant that ultimately did, right? Yeah. I mean, it was by and through. Like, it, again, that's kind of weird, right? Is that the the seller, instead of contacting the buyer directly, instead gave the letter, had, basically knew about the letter, had the PA tell the buyer about this, which, again, that seems a little odd, a little passive or... Or, or what have you, trying to avoid, but but this stuff does happen. I mean, you know, these these escrow periods can be very long. You know, thirty, sixty, even ninety days, even more in bigger transactions. And what's going to happen? You, you know, you you may get lawsuits, you may get certain complaints, you may get certain claims, and so usually nothing is triggered. I should say the 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 closing date is the relevant date. And we talked about at the beginning of the call the indemnification clause where. Things that happen before the before the closing date is going to be the responsibility of the seller, and vice versa. Things that happen after the closing date are going to be the responsibility of the buyer. But just because it's their responsibility, you don't also want to be chasing money, right? Just because it's their responsibility doesn't mean anything's automatic. In the sense that if you think about it, a lot of times, these indemnifications have a limited value because. If, if a business owner is retiring or this is their main source of income, once they sell the business, they may not have any assets or money to indemnify you anyway, even if they wanted to. And so doing the due diligence and not just relying upon an, an indemnification clause is pretty critical. Right. And that's why we... You know, we did a couple things here. We assessed the the general possible damage, or the I guess the the cost of rebranding in this case, and then two, we suggested doing the post close holdback of funds, and which really trying to find a way to to mitigate the potential damage for for the buyer. I, I and that's what we do when something comes up. We do a risk assessment, and then also go through best and worst case scenarios the in this case with a trademark okay the i think the the worst risk is that somehow this company in the east coast gets really aggressive in their in their litigation with using the name and and so they sue for trademark infringement and they could very well sue both the buyer and the seller because from their perspective they may not know who's who right even if the buyer stops using the name and changes their name because once you've infringed there may be some potential liability but that's worst case scenario i think the more likely issue is that okay do can you use this name that she was purchasing in the long term or do you need to change it and if you need to change it how much does that cost to change it because there's nothing free about that i mean this Urgent Care had signage. It had, of course, their intake paperwork. It had a, a billboard. It had marketing material. 
add all that. And your the assumption is when you're buying an existing business that you'll be able to utilize that initial investment in branding to do that. And I recall it, the the logo was good. It was a, it was a, it was a good brand. So after we assessed, I think uh, I, I think in the call, I don't remember what we landed to in the actual document, but or what the the parties agreed to. But it was what we we're thinking ballpark was around thirty thousand dollars. That's a substantial decrease in in purchase price, and the reason why we presented it as a holdback, it it does add a little more complication. Probably you know maybe others may say more than necessary, but given that. The reason our recommendation, I don't think this is this played out in our call. The seller had a personality for which, like, if you asked for a discount, it would have been a lot more difficult to get rather than, hey, this is how much it's going to cost to rebrand. We don't know if we're going to rebrand, but give us the option to do so. And that way, there's some connection to the value that you're decreasing the purchase price. That way, I, I felt we felt that it was a little bit better to for the seller to actually uh, take that offer, that that revised offer. Right. I mean, let's look at the alternatives. Like you said, one would be to try to discount the purchase price, which we just didn't seem like was a viable option. Or two would just be to, you know, I guess, ignore it and roll the dice, which, you know, we, the buyer didn't really want to do. It's, you know, there's, like you said, there's definitely costs that comes with rebranding and there's, they don't want that uncertainty either. So this was, I guess, kind of the compromise between the two options, which ended up working well for both sides, I think. Right. And so let, let's talk about this issue with the relationship between this sellers, seller physician and their employees. So to me, this it, I think you mentioned this. There's some positives and negatives to this from a risk, risk assessment. The positive is that, okay, you come in, you're, you're coming in as a hero, you're the new employer, you're going to treat them right and so forth, so you're going to mitigate those issues. The downside is, is that Sometimes you don't know what's the what are some underlying issues because if you don't have if you have a lot of turnaround and staff, or you've d- developed a reputation in the community, then you have to work against those that that tide to kind of fix that reputation. And, and so, from a risk assessment, it wasn't a huge deal. It's the same thing if you're buying any business. You know, there is a separation between you know closing. So your your hope is is that anything that the seller created before can be fixed by creating new management and new rules and bringing a new life to a business. Yeah, it's, you know, you assume there's always going to be, we've mentioned this plenty of times, but you assume there's always going to be some transition, some learning curve entering as the the new owner. And whether that's good or bad, I mean, depends on the their circumstances. We, we felt pretty confident that the new owner here is going to be an uh, overall positive both for the morale of the employees and just things moving forward. So it's there's no right answer, you know, or I guess there's there's no way to to answer this question without looking at the specifics of the actual transaction. But in this case, like we said, it's I think it's an overall a plus. Right. And then I think the last issue was the employee versus independent contractor issue. I mean, you Matt, you've dealt you deal with this all the time, in fact. I mean, this is a pretty common Issue in general um, for everybody, but it seems like uh, you know even uh, our client. This 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 is a this is an issue that you personally have to deal with quite a bit with just our regular practice, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, particularly in in California where the laws shifted quite a bit at the beginning of of this year of of twenty twenty. But yeah, I mean, I would say just kind of ballparky. I mean. 90% of 
uh, of new clients, you know, at least, I don't know if I don't want to say they have uh, a definite misclassification on their hands, but there's at least a concern if there's not an outright misclassification. Right. It's just it's just difficult to avoid unless you're going to just come in and make everyone employees and not have to to think twice about it. I mean, and there's obviously costs involved with that as well from the employer side, and that's why you don't see all all companies do it, but there always seems to be some sort of misclassification issue. Um, I guess in, in this case, it was a little bit more drastic in the sense that it seems like everyone was was classified as an independent contractor. Right, and and this is more of a tidbit for the seller because we don't want the seller to get in trouble, right? I mean, that's not our our, our purpose here. But when you're when when you make a mistake in classification. And you change from an independent contractor to an employee, it begs the question: Okay, well, I'm doing you know from an employee's perspective. Okay, I'm doing the exact same thing. Now I'm being paid as an employee, and I'm getting paid less because of taxes. What's going on here? And it could really bring up some issues. And then in this case, what if, for example, and it didn't happen. Hopefully, I'm not giving anything away. But what if? This, the the buyer ended up terminating some of the employees, or I should say, not hiring some of the employees. Now, they're going to know that all these, all their colleagues have been um, transferred to W two, and those people that haven't been hired are now independent contractors. They may go to the unemployment office and say, "Hey, I was just fired. Can I have my unemployment?" And of course, independent contractors do not qualify for that, and so this actually may raise an issue for the seller. And so when we've done in the past, when we transitioned from an independent contractor to an employee with some with some of our clients and so forth, it, it's always a very delicate position. In this case, we're only representing the buyer. And so we don't really have a particular concern on how that transition is occurring, only that from our client's perspective to make sure that they're following the law and that it doesn't raise any issues in that transfer that transfer for our client. Yeah, it's a, it's a good way to put it. And uh, at the end of the day, it's it's becoming it's essentially the seller's problem here. But it's always something to keep in mind for on the buyer side as well, because it's something that's going to have to be dealt with. And like we said before, you don't know. And I guess the you know, terminated uh, contractor slash employee. They don't really know who to go after either, and sometimes they'll just try to to go after the the buyer in this case. But right. it's just something that it's the it trickles down. I guess my point is this: the 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 acts, the previous acts of the seller are going to trickle down to the buyer in some fashion, most likely. So it's just something to to keep in mind, and it's, it's there's no way for her to avoid it in this sense because the damage is already done. But you know, it's just it's one thing, and like I said, this grab bag of problems that is going to have to be dealt with. Right. So okay. So we have this is our sixth episode. We have two more episodes left. So this transaction is coming to a close, or is it? And uh, and so we ended in, at a period where right before closing, let's see what happens next. In the meantime, what I would suggest to all of you is to stop whatever you're doing, or I should say, well, that doesn't make sense because you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> stop whatever you're doing except listening to this podcast. Go to the websites for which you listen to our podcast, whether it's iTunes or some other podcast player or whatever. And leave a very, 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 very positive review and comment. 
And that is your obligation to us as we are obligated to provide you this content. Right. Uh, just, just one ask, and I, I think that's a pretty reasonable one. Right. And if you don't, then, um, well, I don't like you anymore. <laughs> I used to like you. So, of course, also, we're also very active on social media and on all the uh, typical Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. Definitely reach out to us if you have any comments or questions, or you can email us at info at legallysoundsmartbusiness.com. Yeah. Many ways to reach us. Very good. Well, two more episodes left. Thank you for joining us. Yep. Keep sound. Keep it smart. Next on Behind the Buy. Happy closing day. So typically closings are not much of an event, as you may think, but uh, we haven't received counter signatures for all the pair contracts. I'm really not too worried about that. You just listened to Legally Sound Smart Business with Asar Pasha and Matt Staub. For more information about the podcast, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. This podcast is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening to or engaging with the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is produced for entertainment and educational purposes only. Do not rely on the information on this podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and does not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. This podcast may contain portrayals of clients by non-clients, reenactment of scenes, and persons which are not actual or authentic, and depictions which are a dramatization.